1995, I was a 20-year-old, wet-behind-the-ear rookie in the United States Coast Guard, stationed on a 180-foot ship in Seattle, Washington. And it just so happened that that summer, uh, the commandant of the Coast Guard was coming from Washington, D.C., out to Seattle for a visit. Now, the commandant is not only an admiral, there's several admirals in the Coast Guard, but he's the admiral. He's the top-ranking officer in all of the Coast Guard. And out of seven years in the Coast Guard, a visit like this only happened one time. I only met the commandant one time in my entire life. So this is quite a rare occurrence for uh, the top dog to come out to a unit like Seattle, let alone my ship in Seattle. We spent weeks getting ready for his visit. Uh, the ship I was on was a buoy tender. It was one of those black hull boats, and it's a, it was a working boat. That's what we always had that mentality where we would, would love to just be out at sea working. So for two weeks, we're stuck in port painting and cleaning and scrubbing and getting ready for this one man to come for maybe a half an hour visit. In fact, in the engine room where I worked, we spent weeks painting the bulkheads and the deck plates and shining the brass and the chrome was so shiny it was like a mirror. He didn't even go in the engine room on his visit. As we're working and scrubbing and cleaning and griping and complaining, some of my colleagues and I, being young ignoramuses that we were, said things like, yeah, I hope uh, the commandant asks us for some suggestions. We'd give him an earful. Uh, we'd ask him for, for a pay raise. Yeah, yeah, dude. We would ask him for like more sea time money. And we want a hot tub. That would be really cool if we had a hot tub on the ship. And, you know, new technology. We had all these ideas of things that we would say if we were, you know, had the opportunity. So the time comes for the commandant to visit Seattle. And we are dressed up in our fanciest uniform, which I had not worn that uniform since boot camp graduation. It's just not something you wear very often when you're on a ship, you know, the full outfit. And um, he goes to like the command center in Seattle, and then he goes and visits one of the polar icebreakers. And eventually he comes over to our ship. We hear it on the loudspeaker, you know, uh, we're all supposed to muster up and get in formation on the aft part of the ship. And the commandant comes on, and of course he's talking with our captain and yucking it up. And I'm sure our captain's trying to like schmooze his way into promotion or something. And so the commandant comes through, and occasionally, you know, he'll talk to somebody. He stops in front of me and looks at me and looks at my Eldridge name tag, which nobody ever says my name right. Eldridge, are you even old enough to be in the Coast Guard, son? Because I was like 20 years old, and I didn't even say anything. And he goes, so tell me, how's life on, on the Mariposa? That was the ship I was on. Again, I could not talk. And then he says, uh, well, any suggestions for me? How are things going at your unit? The most important man in all of the Coast Guard is talking to like one of the least significant people in all of the Coast Guard. And all of my big ideas of stuff I would say if he was to ask me all went out the window. I honestly, to this day, I'm not quite sure what I said, but I know it was with a high, squeaky, dry voice, something about like more comfortable uniforms or something ridiculous like that. My story about my encounter with this very important man um, is an utter failure. This evening we're going to encounter the most important man who ever walked the earth and still reigns at the right hand of the Father. His name is Jesus. And in this story, Jesus is going to ask the question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Now, I'm sure hypothetically we have all kinds of ideas, right? If well, if Jesus were to ask me that, I'd tell him, 
A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? We'd have all these ideas. What I want you to ask, ask you to do is just suspend what you think you might ask Jesus for until we enter in the story a little bit. And let's let the story kind of dictate uh, maybe a better question we could have for Jesus. Would you please stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight, and they followed him. Lord, we are people who don't often see clearly, even though our eyes might be working just fine. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, the windows to our hearts, uh, to your word tonight. Don't let us close them to you, but let us be transformed by your word. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, Elliot Ritzema was our guest preacher, and I listened to the podcast, wonderful message. I love his humor. He brought us the word from Matthew 20, 17 through 28. And in that story, Jesus predicts his crucifixion yet again. He's done this several times by this time. And, and this last time, it's very specific. Uh, I'm going to Jerusalem, going to be arrested there. And even his mode of death is predicted, his crucifixion. And on his way, uh, after that point, Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem, and he makes stops along the way. And his most recent stop in this story tonight, he's in Jericho. He stopped over on his way south, and by this time there's a crowd following him, excited that finally the man who has been teaching like no one else they've ever heard, and has done mighty deeds like no one else they have ever seen, finally this man is leading the entourage to the capital city. Surely they thought there he would prove himself to be the Messiah they'd been waiting for. Surely when he gets to Jerusalem he's going to take the throne and reinstate the sovereignty of the nation of Israel over and against Rome, the oppressor. This crowd, I imagine, is abuzz with energy because not only are they following Jesus, but it's also the preparation for the Passover. They're singing songs, I imagine. The mood is festive. They're probably leaving Jericho singing the Psalms of Ascent, which is what pilgrims would do often on their way to Jerusalem. And on the way, as they pass through the gates of the city of Jericho and hit the open road, there are two men sitting, two blind men, probably in the place they sit every day, probably begging for alms for coin. That's what they did. They didn't have any other way of making a living. They definitely weren't part of this group going to Jerusalem. Now, in Mark and Luke's gospel, we learn that this man, uh, there's one man, a blind man named Bartimaeus, who is the key of the story. In Matthew's version, there's two blind men. 
uh, and they are unnamed. But regardless, these blind men pick up on the fact that not only is a crowd moving past them, but that Jesus is in this crowd. And everyone is saying about this Jesus that he is the Messiah. And if he is the Messiah and you're a beggar, I wonder what could be going through your mind. I wonder what these two blind men might have been discussing with each other. Maybe this future king would have mercy on them and give them money. Maybe this future king would give them enough money so they wouldn't have to beg for a whole month or even a whole year. Maybe this future king would remember them in his glory, in his enthronement, and create some reforms for the blind and the the handicapped. Maybe one of these things had happened. So they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David. What a statement. Let's just unpack that statement for a moment. Clearly, they thought Jesus was someone special, someone dignified. The word Lord means sir or master, very respectful calling. Have mercy on us. Mercy, uh, I think oftentimes we think of mercy as a feeling. It's kind of akin to pity. That's not necessarily so. Mercy is actually a verb. And it means to give practical help. Lord, have mercy on us means, Lord, do something kind for us. Help us. And son of David. Son of David is uh, a Jewish way of saying Messiah. Son of man. Son of David. Messiah, future king, sir, master, have mercy, do something kind for us. Deb read from 2 Samuel 7, and in that passage, God promises a son of David to be on the throne for all time. And by the time this story takes place in the first century, son of David was just one of those words or sayings for Messiah. As these two blind beggars cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, the crowds try to quiet them sternly, even angrily, be quiet. You see, in those days, people with physical defects like blindness and deafness and lameness and leprosy, they were believed to be somehow accursed of God less holy, uninvited into the holy place of worship in the temple. It was believed that if you had one of those ailments with your body, that it was a result either of your sin or the sin of your parents. The crowds did not have time for these unholy blind beggars who must have done something wrong or had something nasty in their family history. They were part of something big. They were an entourage caught up in the hype of the moment, but failing all along to really see that Jesus, who they're following in this mob mentality, is the same Jesus who said, guess what, guys? I am going to the cross. I'm not the type of king you think I am that you want to make me become. My path is not the crown, but the cross, or rather, the crown through the cross. The crowds were following Jesus, a man who would die for the sins of the world, a man who would wash his disciples' feet, but these crowds didn't see that. And they wanted to put their own agenda and hype into the movement and the moment and the man. Be quiet, you blind beggars! We are part of something important here. 
Don't bother him. We're on our way to Jerusalem. We're going to change things around here. Big things. Politics. Religious reform. Broad sweeping changes. Jesus will make things all right. He's our man. All we really need anyway is a new change in leadership. You two beggars are just getting in the way. Don't worry, though. If our important work with Jesus goes well, it'll trickle down to you eventually. Maybe. Who cares? But these men, desperate in their condition, are unaffected by the crowds. In fact, they yell louder. Lord, Son of David, Have mercy on us! There's something about their plea. I don't think it's just the volume of their voice, but there's something that causes Jesus to stop in his tracks amidst this crowd. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. That there is an entire crowd following you because of where you're leading them. An entire crowd who have left homes and the life behind. And up to this point anyway, mile after mile, you've healed some people and taught some people and cast out some demons. But for the most part, I bet statistically speaking, you've walked by more people than you've helped. It's just, I mean, if you read the Gospels, Jesus, the crowds start coming and he says, you know what, it's time for me to go to the next town. Jesus isn't, uh, his agenda isn't dictated by the needs of everyone else. You can't stop for everyone. Jesus didn't stop for everyone. But here, in this instance, against the wishes of the crowd, Jesus stops. Now, I think it's because Jesus knows something that no one else in that crowd knew. He knew that these enthusiastic crowds who were lauding him now would be nowhere to be found when he was executed. He knew that this crowd would lay their coats down and wave palm branches, and sing Hosanna in, by the way, just the next chapter after our story. But not even his closest disciples would be there uh, after he had been arrested and crucified. Well, there's John at the foot of the cross. Something happened with these two men that caused Jesus to stop for them. And he calls them over, and he asks them the question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? It's the moment of truth where these desperate men going to ask for a short-sighted solution like riches or even reform for the way blind people are treated or Would they be more on the lines of King Solomon, who before he went all crazy with like his thousand wives, very wisely asked God for wisdom above all things? In last week's message, we saw how even Jesus' closest disciples asked for greatness, to sit at the right hand of Jesus. What would these morally suspect blind beggars ask for? I wonder what I would ask for. What would you ask for if Jesus, in your private moment, was to say, what do you want me to do for you? 
Josh or Frank, Elizabeth or Wayne, Marika, Adele. What do you want me to do for you? Externals? Lord, I need more money. Happiness. I'm not happy. Success in my good work that I'm doing. Or Lord, change my circumstances. Change the people at work who are really hard to get along with. Change my spouse. Change our culture. Change the political landscape. Not a bad thing to ask for. None of those things are bad things to ask for. So here are two blind men. They have an audience with Jesus, the future king. They could ask for anything they want. They have nothing to lose because they have nothing to lose. And suddenly, it hits them. Hey, we've been hearing stories about Jesus, and if those stories about Jesus are actually true, well, I'm just going to go for it. Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. In other words, we're not asking you to change our circumstances or other people. We're not asking you to change the system. We want you to change us, to transform us, to make us new. Yes, gaining sight will forever change what it means to be me. Once I was a blind person. I was known in the community of the blind. I was in this society, in this culture of begging alms. It's what I did every day. That will no longer be my life if I am able to see again. Yes, gaining sight will mean new responsibility. No longer will I be at the whims of everyone else, but I will then have a life to be responsible for. Yes, gaining our sight will raise all kinds of questions to which we do not have the answers, but Lord, open our eyes. And Jesus is moved with compassion for them. That's not lovey-dovey feelings. That's literally, he is moved within the inner bowels of who he is. These blind men were perhaps the only ones in that entire crowd who could actually see. Isn't that ironic? The, The crowds saw Jesus as they wanted to see Jesus, but at this moment in this story, these two blind men who could not actually see with their eyes were actually seeing Jesus more clearly than anyone else. Because Jesus' question is a kind of test of sorts. What do you want me to do for you? Are you, in other words, just after the spectacular? Are you just after what you can get from me, like the crowds in John chapter 6 who were just after a little bit of bread in the wilderness? And basically Jesus is like, you guys are not seekers, you're snackers. Do you want a band-aid on your situation or do you want deep transformative healing? Because that's harder. Do you want a miracle or a master? Do you think you have it together except for just a few tweaks here and there? No. These men, they knew their desperate condition. And they placed their hopes on Jesus. And he was so moved that he, you know, you know the stories of Jesus and the centurion and 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 his slave and the guy comes, you're not worthy to go in my house. And Jesus heals this dying man at a distance, doesn't even see him. Jesus can do those kind of things. Jesus can call Lazarus out of the grave with a word. Lazarus, come forth. But isn't it interesting that when he does these healings on the nastiest sorts of people, the lepers, and sometimes the dead, he'll put his hands on them. 
And these blind men who are probably in clothes that are wearing through, they probably smell horrible. No one's been caring for their eyes. They're probably, I mean, nasty, right? Furthermore, there's a, a spiritual connotation. In Jewish culture, it was believed that if you touch a person like that, let alone just anywhere on their body, but if you touch their nasty, scaled-over eyes, possible drainages coming out, if you touch that stuff, you were unclean. You were unable then to worship the living God in the temple for a period of time and a period of cleansings. Now, isn't it interesting, though, that Jesus chooses to touch these people? He put his hands on their nasty eyes. Because Jesus is saying, unclean things cannot make you unclean. He makes them clean. And that same Jesus is in you and in me, for those of you who have called him your Lord and placed your faith in him. You cannot be defiled by unclean people. You bring the blessing and the holiness of God with you. So Jesus touches these men and the sight of their uncleanness and makes them clean, heals them. And of course, these men who could already really see who Jesus was do what the only natural thing to do is. They follow him. He opens their eyes and they follow him, their new Lord and Savior. Now, what is it about this story? What is it about these men that is so exemplary? Two things that I want to point out. One, these men saw themselves correctly. They had an accurate appraisal of who they really were. The crowds, I think, thought that they were somehow closer to God. If you, if you were in the crowd and you were to say, who's closer to God, crowd? You, following Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, or blind men who were believed to be accursed of God, you would say, well, gosh, the people with Jesus. They actually thought that they were closer to God than these men more important, but these two blind men were humble. They recognized that they were dependent on God for their daily sustenance, their, their daily bread, if you want to look at the Lord's Prayer. They knew that they were blind and needy. They knew that they did not deserve or believe they didn't deserve to be in the temple at all. They knew that they did not have a path toward upward social mobility or financial security. They were desperate. And because they knew this, they were actually seeing things quite clearly. You know, this is similar to Matthew chapters 18 and 19 that we've covered recently. And that repeated theme of having childlike faith. That's a similar thing. Childlike faith is just recognizing our absolute dependence on God. I wonder, and I'm saying this to myself as well. I always preach to myself, remember. Do we recognize our desperate situation? Do you think you pretty much have control over your life on a regular day, on a regular basis? Do you think that your life is pretty much together, but a little Jesus here and there sprinkled, and when you have time, wouldn't hurt? Do you think overall you're a fairly good person who makes a few mistakes here and there and Jesus is really important for when you really screw up? Do you think that this church, the church or this church, is doing pretty well because we have wise leadership 
and make some pretty good decisions, and we have generous people. Jesus warned the church of Laodicea of their arrogance. He says, You say that I'm rich and I have become wealthy and that I have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He was speaking this into a rich, affluent church. People probably without blindness and defects. People with not only clothes on their backs, but very nice clothes. And Jesus says, listen, in your arrogance, you you think you're independent from me? You are blind and naked and poor and wretched. Learn from the blind man who knew, or the blind men who knew their condition. And even after having their physical eyes opened, leave to follow Jesus. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Some of the earliest traditions of the church have turned that sentence into a prayer known as the Jesus Prayer. Uh, It has become the Jesus Prayer as early as the third and fourth centuries, and it's been turned into this, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And one of the the things that people have done with this Jesus prayer, uh, especially in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, as if used that prayer as a way of centering our minds, our focus, our hearts throughout the day on God. So some folks will say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, in their mind throughout the day. And it will be a focusing point uh, when things are going well. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for my garden that's in bloom. Thank you for my my children, my wife, or my best friends, or my job, whatever it is. And when things are very, very difficult, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. Do something kind for me, right? Mercy's a verb. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm in desperate need for you to intervene. And when things are lukewarm and mundane, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It is because you in this mundane situation that I draw breath at all. Show me where you are alive and active in this situation. It's a way of drawing our attention to God. And so I offer that to you as a, uh, an experiment maybe for a week. And you could say, oh, I want to try and pray that prayer throughout the day. Maybe when you wake up and go to sleep and in between. And you will fail miserably. And you'll go four hours and you'll say, darn, I forgot to pray the prayer. Lord Jesus Christ. Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And instead of beating yourself up like a good evangelical, what you could do instead is you could say, Lord, thank you for reminding me. Where have you been over the last four hours? And be gentle because God is gentle with you. And let it be a prayer that draws you back in and back in and back in. So the blind men saw themselves properly. They didn't think that they were worms but they saw themselves properly in desperate need of Jesus. And isn't that really us as well? They also saw Jesus accurately. They saw themselves properly, and they saw Jesus accurately. Did they have all their theology correct? No. Did they know that Jesus would die for them and then be raised from the dead? How could they? Did they know he was, in fact, the second person of the Trinity? It wasn't even a thing yet. It wasn't even a theological construction yet. Uh, They did not know he was begotten and not made. Uh, Did they know he was the creator of the universe and the author of their salvation? Uh, No, probably not at that time. And guess what? None of us, 
at this point in time, have our theology perfectly correct. It's hopefully a process we're growing on, but I suspect that none of us will have it locked down until we meet Jesus face to face and we'll go, oh, wow, I still don't understand you fully. <laughs> um, and, and isn't that a beautiful thing? Who wants a God you can put in a box and understand, right? But what these men did see correctly is that they needed to trust Jesus to save them. They trusted with tiny mustard seed faith that he could do something for them that no one else could do. And that is saving faith. Not having all your theology figured out. They saw that Jesus was not only a political Messiah, but that he was God's Messiah who would rescue people from spiritual bondage, not merely political bondage. Isaiah 35 talks of God opening up the blind, the eyes of the blind and healing the lame. Strengthening the limbs of the weak. They saw with spiritual vision that Jesus was more than a politician or a military general or even a prophet. He was God's authorized Savior. And what we see here in this story is that where there is faith, even tiny little bits of faith, even not completely informed faith, it is enough to stop Jesus in his tracks. Jesus is the same Elroy, the God who sees. He's the God who saw Hagar in the book of Genesis. He's the God who saw Elizabeth and Mary. He's the God who sees Zacchaeus up in a tree. He's the God who sees these blind men because of their faith. He's the God who sees you and I when we humble ourselves before him. Amen? There are endless ways one could answer the question from Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? But if we've learned anything from this encounter with Scripture, it's that perhaps, I'm being gentle there, I will say for myself, absolutely, what we need the most is to be able to clearly see Jesus and to trust what he shows us. We need to see our true condition. My true condition is lost, bent towards sin, blind to reality, fearful, angry, frustrated by unrealistic expectations. And I frequently must confess this, which is why the Jesus prayer has been helpful for me. And we need to see Jesus as he really is. King and Savior, compassionate, capable, sacrificed for us, raised to invite us to new life, risen in glory, and currently reigning in justice and mercy. Here's what I want to do with this. I want to invite us to a silent time of confession, of self-disclosure to God. God, this is where I really am. Answer the question, what do you want me to do for you?